Hi, uh, nice to be here at the Silicon Valley STC meeting. Um, this is a talk I originally uh, put together for the Write the Docs conference uh, last year. Uh, and it's a cool conference and uh, uh, if you have a chance, you should, you should go to it. Um, and uh, I think I'll just kick off. So, so I've been working as a tech writer for a couple of decades now, mostly in the field of uh, enterprise and data analytics software. And I've been a writer with Splunk for almost seven years, which is a strange thing to say. It doesn't feel like I've been there that long. Uh, Splunk is a, is a fun place to work. You'll find out one reason why I say that about halfway through this talk. For some context, here's what Splunk is all about. I'm gonna go all corporate on you for a minute. Uh, at its core, the Splunk platform enables you to collect data from anywhere with universal forwarding and indexing technology. It searches and analyzes uh, across all of your data with powerful search and schema on the fly technology. And it rapidly delivers real-time insights from machine data to IT and business people through a powerful UI and dashboards. And this is what we call operational intelligence. All right, and back to our scheduled program. I joined Splunk in 2008. Back then, our, our documentation set was relatively easy for us writers to manage and for our customers to apprehend. We had just one product, it was called Splunk. The documentation for that product was broken out into just a few manuals, all broken out by role or task. At that time, the bulk of our customers <laughs> what? How old is the company? It's uh, since about 2002, three. At that time, the bulk of our customers were technically sophisticated problem solvers. They were the kind of people who knew their way around regular expressions and could tell their TCP inputs from their UDP inputs, and they loved the challenge of learning and mastering a sophisticated search language. And they're the sort of folks who now relax by hanging out in our IRC channel and our Slack channel. Uh, hashtag Splunk and our answer site helping newbies with their Splunk related quandaries and sometimes we hire those people. Seven years later things have changed actually it's eight years now uh, we now have customers who aren't as patient as those early adopters they're not always as technically sophisticated or have the time or inclination to puzzle out solutions they want complex problems to be solved yesterday, and our tutorials get them started, but don't always take them where they need to go. Meanwhile, our documentation options have expanded as we've introduced more products and more manuals. There are more moving parts, more things to uh, fit together, and more docs to read, and a much wider range of functionality and problem-solving capability uh, if people knew it's there and how to use it. At Splunk, we have a lot of communication with our customers. Every topic has a feedback form and an option to leave comments, and we try to respond to all of them. Customers also communicate with us through IRC and our answers community, and we get customer input from our support sales and professional services divisions. From day to day, most of our, our suggestions for our, most of our comments are suggestions for doc improvement. Occasionally, we get praise. And sometimes people throw rotten tomatoes at us. A lot of the pointedly negative feedback relates to the plethora of manuals, number of topic-to-topic -topic links, and amount of reading that must be done. Others just want simple instructions for tasks. I want to do the thing. Show me how to do the thing. Please tell me this thing, it must be done. 
We can get people started with a tutorial, but it's obvious. We have a chasm that must be bridged. Something that will help us get users from beginner to intermediate or from intermediate to expert. Something that will connect the dots. For new users, getting started with a large enterprise application is like taking a journey into a dark, enchanted forest. There are quests that they want to take, but they do not see clearly how to complete them. So how do we get them started? How do we give them a way forward that puts them at ease and routes them around the obvious pitfalls? How do we help them accomplish their objectives? And what do we do to help them not just become familiar with the forest, but expert travelers within it? You could give them a tutorial, something that helps them become entry-level dark forest explorers. a sort of hello forest exercise. They'll learn the basic prereqs and find out how to access the forest and maybe do a quick camping trip overnight to get a feel for the place. It's good for a start, but it doesn't do much more than get people familiar with the basics. If they want to do something truly useful, like consult with the lady of the lake or successfully capture a firebird, they need more help. You could provide your customers a conceptual overview of the dark forest. Give the forest user some historical context and provide a general idea of the stuff they'll find in the forest. You could even include some cool diagrams to provide a big picture view of how the forest operates. Maybe it's powered by the magic of a unicorn or maintained and protected by a collective of sentient trees. Make sure to provide a lot of links to more detailed information, of course. Alternatively, you can provide procedural information. Lots and lots of task-oriented topics to cover all the different kinds of things that an experienced dark forest explorer should know how to do. A different procedure for every possible thing one might want to do in the forest. If you provide a decent table of contents and index, they should be able to piece together the various things they need to carry out whenever, whatever quest they want to carry out, right? But these solutions aren't always super helpful for users who want to make the leap from spending a night near the border of the forest to doing something that is actually significant. The conceptual overview is too broad and the procedures are too detailed and many of them are relevant to what some forest explorers need to do. This is where scenario-based or use-case-based use walkthrough can come in handy. Let's say you have a customer named Scarlett. She's got a delivery to make. She wouldn't ordinarily have to do this, but her younger cousin went in without much prep and is now missing. Scarlett needs help getting to a small senior citizens community that is mysteriously located in one of the more treacherous parts of the wood. Can you help her out? Sure you can. So here's where you come up with a way to tell an instructional story that brings the customer to the ending they want, not the one where they find themselves in the belly of a wolf wearing an old lady dress, but the one where they are victorious. It's similar to the tutorial, but it goes further. It knows who it is talking to and what they want to do. It provides useful prereqs that are specific to the task at hand. It assumes that certain basic knowledge, such as how to find and enter the forest, is known, and it provides useful tips and tricks to get them through their journey with a minimum of distress. Most importantly, it takes into account some of the more threatening variables that might trip up the customer, and it tells the customer how to minimize or defuse their menace. The point is to show your customer how to get a complex task done, in a way that might help them take on similar tasks in the future with a minimum of confusion. Now all this talk about axe combat with werewolves and weird enchanted forests full of fairy tale creatures is reminding me of something that's kind of relevant to our topic. Ah, there it is. Tabletop role-playing games. 
Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I'm willing to bet that the majority of people attending this talk either know what I'm talking about from direct experience or know people who do. A number of you are either self-identifying nerds or nerd-adjacent. <laughs> That's how Ann Wheaton, wife of Will, describes herself. Storytelling and getting people through it to the end is at the heart of D&D. For those who are unfamiliar with the dynamics of D&D, it boils down to this. You have a set of players and a game master. The game master tells the players what they see. The players tell the GM what they do. And the GM tells them what happens. Dice are rolled to determine the outcome of certain actions and events. If the game master is doing their job and the players are sufficiently focused, everyone gets swept up in the adventure. And sometimes, sometimes legendary, sometimes ludicrous, always fun. Neither party knows exactly what will happen next until it's all over. Along the way, ridiculous things are said, and hopefully people remember to write them down. So I came back to D&D a few years ago after a hiatus of several decades. I played the game through much of middle school and high school. This was back in the early 80s when the only types of D&D available were called basic and advanced. It was still a pretty new thing. Then I went to college where I made friends who were more interested in deconstructing French New Wave cinema and debating postmodern theory than role-playing games and it became a thing of the past. Two decades and change later I joined Splunk, UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> Two decades and change later, I joined Splunk. Rachel, my boss at the time, played D&D and was thinking about getting an office game going. When she asked me if I'd like to join, I said, sure. That was around 2009, and our little group is still going. Turns out D&D goes well with Scotch whiskey. Who knew? <laughs> Here's a gang I play with at Splunk. By day, they're the best of our product development, support, business development, professional services, and sustaining engineering teams. Every other Wednesday night, however, they become someone else. We order delivery food, sometimes someone brings nice wine, and we stay late at the office rolling dice, chasing slave merchants through ancient subterranean minotaur cities and slaying terrible beasties. It's a good time. So the interesting thing about D&D, as well as just about all other decent tabletop role-playing games on the market, is that it's heavily documented. There are a lot of rules and tables and charts and stats and, and types and classes of things. All the stuff you need to build and operate a fictional world that works with playable mechanics. Some people are frightened away by all this text. But as a kid, I was drawn to it. This is the book that sold me on the game way back in 1982. A whole manual of monsters. What could be greater? I spent hours poring over all of the monster descriptions and stats. Some of them I memorized. Carrion crawlers, owl bears, intellect devourers, gelatinous cubes, chromatic dragons, the dreaded beholder. So there you have it. I was fetishizing a manual, documentation, when I was in middle school. Suddenly, my choice of career path makes sense. So just like software, new versions of D&D are released every few years. With every version, they put out a new set of manuals update with updated rules, adjustments to gameplay, and new art. The fifth edition of Dungeons & Dragons is released couple years ago to mostly positive reviews. Here's what the monster manual looks like now. The art and book design is a lot cleaner nowadays, for better or worse, depending on your preference. Personally, I, I love that updated Beholder on the book cover, but I know several people who will always prefer the relatively crude sketches of yesteryear. So in software documentation terms, I see the player's handbook as the user manual. 
This is where people go to get to the ground rules for the game's operating system. It's where they learn how to create their characters, and it teaches players how to handle basic adventuring, things like buying supplies, combat with weapons, learning skills, acquiring and casting spells, and so on. It gets both players and game masters started. The Dungeon Master's Guide is for game masters only. It's an admin manual. It tells game masters how to run a game that moves well and fun for the players, and is fun for the players. It also functions as an, as an SDK. There's a great deal of material to aid game masters and adventure developers in the creation of imaginary worlds and the adventures that take place in them. The adventures, or modules in D&D, Prolance, are where everything comes together, because without the adventures, there's no game. They're the story. That's that the game master tells. The environment that the, play that the players move within and make their decisions. The adventure is all scenario-based documentation. The only difference here is that this documentation is transmitted to the end users through the admin, who keeps the details a secret. The game master has a map. The players need to discover it and defeat the creatures, traps, and plot developments between them and their goal. But at the end of the day, the mission of a D&D adventure shares many of the same goals as scenario-based scenario documentation. They want to get the end users from an adventure story to its satisfying conclusion, from the start of an adventure story to its satisfying conclusion. They help the end users accomplish a few amazing feats along the way. And ideally, the process of engaging in and completing the adventure ensures that the users level up at the end so that they complete the experience stronger and with more confidence than they had when they went in. Just to make sure this doesn't sound too much like a clever buzz marketing campaign for Wizards of the Coast, the company that publishes D&D, let's talk about what happens when things go wrong with their products. D&D pretty much lives and dies by how playable it is. Over the years, the rule set has undergone several major revisions. When I came back to the game a few years back, they're in the fourth edition, which was considerably more complicated than the version I'd played as a teen. The fifth edition of D&D scaled back the rules to make the game more approachable for new users. Let's see. Um, okay. To make the game more approachable for new users and to make gameplay move faster. Overall, it looks like the fifth edition was, is well received, but that doesn't mean that Wizards of the Coast is making missteps. Their first big adventure, adventures for the new edition were panned by critics. The culprit? Bad writing, obvious and unimaginative adventure workflow, maps that weren't correctly labeled, and a whole bunch of material that somehow failed to get into the printed book, so they offered it as a downloadable PDF instead. A lot of things that could have been corrected by a more detail-oriented team of writers who were perhaps given a little more time to deliver their product. Sound familiar to anyone? In tabletop role-playing games like D&D, there's a concept called railroading. Part of the fun of these games is that the th players theoretically have absolute free will. For example, there's technically usually nothing stopping a group of players from quitting a dungeon crawl, going topside, and setting up a crepe shop in a nearby village if that's what they really want to do. This is where a game master sets up all kinds of devices to push players through an adventure, or all to keep them on the one true path. They can create maps that appear to allow players to go in a variety of directions but in reality provide only one way to get from point A to point E. Oh, you want to go to the next town instead of the Griffin Keep? Go ahead. Oh, too bad, the bridge to that town was washed out by a storm. Or they might have a whole host of non-player characters, village innkeepers, town mayors, stray knights, constantly remind the players that they need to continue the 
obvious mission when they seem to be stalled out somewhere or worse, going in the wrong direction. Railroading is controversial. When it's really obvious, it can make for a dull game. Nobody enjoys feeling like a puppet. On the other hand, plotless stories are lame as well. So the trick is to come up with stories that are worth going on a railroad for. This is also true for scenario-based documentation, especially if you're documenting a product that is wide open in the range of choices it gives its users. If your product has a UI component and its UX team is good, they may be able to mitigate a certain amount of customer confusion that comes with, a huge, with huge feature sets, endless configurability, and somewhat free-form task workflows. Either way, you'll still want to document some well-defined use cases for your customers to help them down the road. Get to know your customers well enough to find out where they want to go and what they need to do. Then take them on an express train to Awesome Town, otherwise known as that perfect solution to their truly vexing problem. Unlike D&D plays, your customers aren't expecting surprises and would rather not run into them. They won't mind the railroad experience, especially if they learn something new along the way. So as we come back to our side of the looking glass and return to the subject of documenting technology products, I'd just like to reiterate that scenario-based documentation for, is for customers who have finished the tutorial and now want to get, to some, get something real done. The tutorial did its job. It got them to a simple hello world state with your product. Now you need to give them some scenario-based documentation that gets them to where they really want to go, the off-world colonies. They want a hello Mars, hello Neptune, or even Hello, Uruk Cloud experience, and you can give that to them. The Splunk documentation organization was aware that there was a need for some kind of large-scale scenario-based material. While we spent our time just trying to keep up with the pace of development, documenting new functionality and birthing new manuals to contain that documentation, we had people in our professional services and sales engineering divisions taking our documentation debt into their own hands designing and writing use-case-oriented educational material to bridge the documentation gap between novice user and expert. In October of, of, uh, well, of 2014, my coworker Robin Pillay and I had our attention drawn to a presentation for Splunk Enterprise, our core product. It was created by the sales engineering organization at our Hong Kong office. It led customers through the process of creating a dashboard that displayed data about password hacking attempts on a web server. It covered a variety of subjects, extraction of fields from log data, construction of the necessary search strings, creation of a dashboard with different types of data visualizations, and hacking into the XML behind the dashboard to add specific drill down mechanics. The project brings together functionality that's currently spread across six or seven manuals. If a user tried to figure out how, how to put this project together on their own, they would have to read through large portions of those manuals and do a lot of trial and error to get it right. But some people, some people are up to that challenge, but a lot of people aren't. In other words, it was just the thing we were looking for. The Splunk development organization was gearing up for a big Hack Week event, and we decided to make this our contribution. We were the first doc team in the history of Splunk to participate in a Hack Week event, and it was a lot of fun. For the Hack Week draft, we threw the project together in Google Sites, partly to get the feel of a different doc solution than the one we typically use, and partly because it could do a few things that our current doc solution can't, at least for the moment, like display video. The target audience for this is the sort of user I've been talking about all along. Someone who has basic familiarity with the product and who is now trying to get over that hump from beginner to intermediate or from intermediate to expert. I like being able to put note information on the sidebars along the right side of the page. 
it's not something we can do with our, in our, with our current manual setup. Uh, when we were finished, the product project was a hit. We received praise not only from our managers, but also upper management and development and marketing. Next, we moved our scenario-based doc project to PonyDocs, our home-brewed, open-source, MediaWiki-based documentation system. It now looks cleaner and like part of our doc set. The right-hand sidebar notes had to be added into the main text body of the scenario stages, but we hope to get them back in a future update of the PonyDocs UI. The scenario starts by clarifying the use case at hand and, lifting the, and listing the goals of the project, the things that the user needs to complete to resolve the use case. This goal section also includes a big picture summary of the stages involved in getting to those goals and a list of the prerequisites that must be completed before they can start. In this case, the main prereq is the indexing of the sample data this scenario depends upon. We created a video that quickly demonstrates the end goal, in which, which in this case is the dashboard that the users are to build. Video does not waste any time explaining how the dashboard gets built. We broke down each stage of the project into easily digestible groups of procedures, breaking down some of the cognitive leaps the user needs to make in order to solve this problem. And yes, this is an obvious railroad, but we're confident that it's a track the user won't mind following. This particular stage of our scenario, titled Examine Your Data, contains two procedures. One where the user reviews event patterns in the data and finds a pattern that fits the type of events they want to search on, and another where the user runs a search using the event pattern that they have isolated. When they're done, they'll go to the next stage of the scenario where they learn how to extract fields from the events returned by that search feels their need for their dashboard visualizations. Other writers at Splunk are beginning uh, with their own approaches to scenario-based documentation. Writers for our apps team to deal with product offerings that do not always involve the broad range of functionality covered by the core product. But they're still trying to help our users with use cases that aren't easily sorted out by just reading the manual. This use case scenario shows the user how to build a solution for an online marketplace that needs to maintain its service level agreements. The marketplace has guaranteed their site will be available 99% of the time, which translates into a maximum allowable downtime of 43.2 minutes per month. This document shows the user how to create a service that monitors the site for problems. It could lead to a service failure, sends alerts when service conditions occur, and identifies root cause so problems can be solved quickly. So what have we at Splunk learned while working on these projects? First off, know your customers. Know what problems they're trying to solve. Find out what roadblocks they're running into as they stumble around trying to solve these problems on their own. If you don't know, talk to people at your organization who have regular customer contact, support, sales, professional services, education services. Develop customer profiles and pitch the scenario to a specific profile. This can cut down the scope of the scenario and its solution. This isn't a tutorial. This isn't about getting started. It's about what to do after you've gotten started. It's about solving big problems. And it's not a marketing use case study. Marketing folks sometimes problem customers, promise customers the moon. If that's what they're doing, then this is where you show them exactly how they do get to the moon. Prove your product can do what marketing says it does. Try to keep it as simple as possible. This is why chunking information into separate, easily digestible topics can be a good idea. The longer the topic, the more overwhelmed the customer is likely to feel. Don't waste time explaining how things work under the hood if you don't need to. Provide informational links out to the primary doc set for that kind of thing. If you can use video, use it sparingly, strategically, and as a supplement 
for the text. Videos should always be used for illustration rather than documentation. And keep your videos short. We kept ours down to 30 seconds on average. Customers should not need to watch a video to learn how to do a thing. And finally, building these things can be fun. They allow you to see the product through a, spe through a specific customer's eyes. And this, in the process, you sometimes discover new ways to write about your subject that you hadn't before. You're telling a cool adventure story, and it gives the customer a Hollywood ending every time. And what's better than that? And that's it. So. Well, uh, so we, we have procedural docs, but we think of them not as, as a long, uh, 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 we think of them as being relatively short, like how to get through a screen on a page or how to do a very, very specific task. But what I'm talking about here is, is more like a, sec a collection of procedures, you know, uh, the, the project I worked on has maybe 12 procedures that are all threaded together. So you showed that hackathon thing and, and there, there was this set of seven things, I think, that you said there, was an obvious railroad. Now, were those, was that just a, a super procedure or what? You could, well, you, you, if, you, if you'd rather call it a super procedure or a super task, you could. But we're, talk, we're calling them scenarios because they're, they're not about, they're really specifically about how to solve a certain use case. So it starts out with a customer problem, a fictional customer problem. They, try, they have hackers coming in, they don't know who they are, they need to locate them and figure out who they are. And we give them a way to, to go from the server data to a set of dashboards that show alerts and, and, and have geographical information and all this other stuff. And it takes a while to get from the jumbly data on one end to the pretty visualizations on the other. And like I said, it was, it, the information is spread at this point across six or seven manuals. So the only way to do it is to isolate it out as a scenario in a separate uh, uh, manual almost. So. But we, we've been, uh, there's been a lot of experimentation since I wrote this at, at Splunk on scenario-based documentation. And there are a lot of people that do single topic scenarios. There's still usually groups of procedures. Um, uh, but it's, the, the idea is that it's not, it's something that you, they don't want, we don't want to make a 47 step procedure. So we try to break it up into pieces that, that kind of make kind of sense for the, for the user. Um, I have a question. Sure. So, in one of the examples, you had rest for the trip as like one of the segments on a journey, right? Right. Now, what if you have five different journeys and each of them requires the user to complete dress for the trip? How do you, um, let's say you have that map on each of the topics, right? So, on dress for the trip, you've got the map of the journey that that uh, journey entails, you know? So, how. When you have a topic that's reused across different journey maps, do you just copy and paste or reuse the same content uh, discreetly across every one of these journeys? Or do you, um, like, how do you reuse the same? That's topic? a good, well, that's a good question. And that's not something we've really encountered yet. It's interesting. We actually had a, 
Uh, we are not. We're, we're using MediaWiki, and uh, we we um, have some limited reuse capabilities with it, but it's not Ditto. Yeah, you could. But, but I'm saying when you're viewing the, when you're viewing that topic, the wrong map is going to show if you're following a different journey. Like you'd have the, all five journey maps. Right. But but we're yeah, I mean the interesting thing is we're approaching this from outside of data. So we're kind of why is that? I mean, why haven't you evaluated We're why well, I'm saying why do you think your tool is is well We get a lot out of out of working in, in a wiki platform than 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 Ditta, but I'm not really here to defend the two. You could you could do the same transclusion on MediaWiki docs as you can in Ditta. Ditta is just going to spit out five different like separate. We do have we are we do, we do have transclusion. One website, one source. You don't want to have five different versions of the same topic. Well, we're we're at this point we're not convinced that we're going to run into that problem right now. Uh, but the, the I think the idea is to is to make scenarios that really kind of feel like they all are part of uh, a specific uh, a problem, not that they're not made up of interchangeable parts necessarily. I mean the data that the that there that this that the that scenario works with would not be work the same as you can't you know once you get to the point where you're pulling out the fields it's not going to work the same as you know, security data is going to be different than web store data, for example. And the problems that someone at, a, like, a, a working at a, a credit card company is doing, trying to figure out that, or a stock company dealing with stock stuff, it's just, they, everybody has a different problem they're trying to solve. One of the tricky things with Splunk is that it is super flexible. And, like, basically any kind of data, whether it's structured or unstructured, you can be index it, you can do things with it, you can solve problems, you can make... Uh, visualizations based on it, see trends and do all kinds of machine learning things. And there's that, the, the tricky thing really is just trying to kind of feel like you can cover everybody's problems, you know. And this one thing is just sort of, even that is nothing compared to the well of stuff that people have an issue with. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, the characters go through all these intricate different interactions. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about what you're doing with Splunk and you have all these different processes and products, I guess, I can see the correspondence between the early part of the talk and the later part of the talk. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm a bit of a nerd. That's why I went in this direction with this talk. But um, it, uh, it, 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 I mean, I like to think of, uh, you know, I like to come up with ways to kind of gamify my work a little. And if part of it is sort of bringing people through, kind of figuring out how to take people on a, on a, a to Z story, I think that's very, you know, that's very exciting for me. So how did, how did these Japanese folks come up with the 
it is not a it is a very pretty common uh, uh, like uh, enterprise security or, or, or network security use case. Um, so this came from customers? It came from uh, SE, sales engineers, who, who are trying to come up with ways to sell the product to who knows, you know, to, to people in, in Shanghai, I suppose. Um, and, and we have a lot of like Spunk Live events where we demo the product and try to show how to do this or that thing for you. Um, and so they're actually a really good source for, for this kind of thing. Um, but I also get, you know, we get ideas from our customers themselves. Uh, and, uh, it, and it, there, that we now have a lot of different apps that is, you know, specifically pointed at specific, uh, 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 verticals, I guess you'd say. So, you know, um, or people, you know, to help people certain products but so the stuff that like i could see us having scenarios for for secure for like an enterprise security app that would be completely different from our internet uh uh networking app and uh in my docs i have lots of small like little use case procedures how to do configure a thing for this how to configure a thing for that but nothing that loops a whole bunch of stuff together so Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we recognize that there's problems with their wiki, uh, with with our choice of authoring tool. But on the other hand, I love that I can uh, just go in and make a change and make it live right away. There's a lot of flexibility as far as like responding to customer feedback, and just make you know we get people right going, hey, you've got a typo here, and and out within half hour I've changed fixed it and I can write back to them and that uh, kind of and sort of breathes customer trust a little um, and but you know and then we can just make changes on the fly all the time so I like that Right. Right. Uh, I don't know. It's so you're asking: Are we getting less feedback or, or more positive feedback? Or are getting more positive feedback and fewer fewer individual um, hey, this doesn't help me. It's it's definitely a metric that we're following. I'm actually not quite sure where it's at right now. We are we are right now struggling to deal with a lot of other issues with our documentation. That's more on the level of like kind of larger scale like every page is page one and things where a lot of our documentation is written in, in an early kind of from a 10 year old perspective on documentation and we're trying to get out of the idea that 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 we're trying to get make our docs more useful to, to kind of current users basically and there are we you will find the some of the complaints that i mentioned and that, that i showed in that slide we're still getting 
and it's partly because uh, as much as we're trying to, you know, we don't have, we're trying to re keep, revise our new documentation uh, or our or, or older documentation, but we're also have plenty to write that's new. And um, so it's still a work in progress, I guess is what I would say. I don't know. I think you sort of always sort of, trying, you know, trying to push that boulder up the mountain. So. Customers use it or use it internally? Do you use it for both? How does that work? Uh, uh, the, uh, so actually, uh, the RC channel, it's, it, it, it's a place where customers can go hang out and kind of talk to each other and also talk to various Splunk people. It's kind of been superseded in recent, uh, within the last year, by a, a Slack channel. But it's basically the same place. Um, and and we have uh, my former boss, the uh, mentioned her name Rachel, who also got me back into D and D. Uh, she's now kind of the head of our customer community group, and uh, one of the things that she's got going is a thing called the Splunk Trust, and these are a group of uh, customers who are very prev you know, con pretty much ever present either on uh, those forums or in our answers section answering people's questions and they're like and she, they have special events for them and they have those people give talks at our conferences and she's basically encouraging some of our kind of super user customers to get really involved in in the community so yeah was there a question yeah Well, we do. We have we have meetups. Um, we uh, have, like I said, we get a lot of customer feedback. We meet them in various ways, uh, and then uh, I uh, um, the development. Like for example, some of the development teams we're on have a lot of like do a lot of workshopping our products as as they're you know alpha and beta testing, um, and we kind of try to prove out our ideas about what uh, audience we're going for with a certain feature. Um, and uh, I feel like I, I see a lot more, have a lot more customer interaction in this job than I ever did in my early years as a tech writer. I've been doing this since since 91 or so. Um, and um, I think most of the 90s I never saw a customer really, except through a glass window a couple times. <laughs> So uh, it's been really nice to actually answer a customer's question via email and, and say, oh, you do it this way and I'll fix the doc and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, sometimes you will get certain people that will review our doc. They'll get that once they realize they get feedback and that they have, they're actually changing something, they'll start reviewing all of our topics and come back with feedback on all of them. And, uh, and you can some of some writers get a little annoyed by it, but it's really great actually, because who you you know you never knew what people thought of your of your docs before that. Do they have so. to send you email, or can they enter comments on the wiki, or what? Yeah, there's a there's a little feedback form on every wiki page. Yeah, so they can also leave a comment on the wiki. So either way, we'll respond to it. Um, yeah, we're basically we try to respond to customer feedback within within 24 hours. But they can't edit it. Oh no, 
No. Yeah. Although everyone at Splunk is editorial capability. That's that's interesting sometimes. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. It seems like that would be the best kind of feedback that you'd get a lot of different perspectives on the same issue. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll, there have been times when I haven't been quick enough to answer a comment that someone's left on a page, and then someone else will answer it, and and uh, and then. But yeah, there's a lot of areas where our customers are really active. Like the, we have this answers section. It's not documentation. And that's been great because it's kind of like a, uh, people go in there with a question about the product and somebody else goes and answers it, you know. And it's like a mine for, for use case examples, you know, or weird problems people are running into. Or some, you sometimes can use it to figure out like, okay, the docs are not giving people enough information about X topic and then you fill that in. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was I was thinking about the implications of that. Like, how how many people are only feeding it, and do you ever is there ever an edit war scenario where uh, somebody maybe doesn't uh, agree with the exact wording of your, of your solution? Or uh, not so far. I did notice that somebody had gone and one of my fellow writers had gone and put a sentence of mine in passive voice the other day, and I'm a little irked about that. But <laughs> uh, for the most part, it's not a problem. You know, I think we're all we all we all know we're on the same team, so that kind of thing hasn't been an issue. Yeah, um, but uh, we I, I when I joined the company, I was worried that having everyone in the company technically have edit access was going to be an issue. But it isn't so much. We can follow everything that gets done through RSS, and uh, and and I can see when people are changing my you know certain topics of mine and so forth and. Mostly, it's nothing that isn't that I can't, you know, handle. So it's never been a big problem, and I'm usually grateful when somebody goes and fixes a typo rather than making me break out of my workflow to do it. So. So how hard is it to edit something on the wiki? I mean, easy. Really easy. It's just it's basic markup. You just click edit, boop, and then uh, click uh, you know commit basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's also easier to put in typos and easier to, you know, you, you the the whole thing with data where where it it kind of maintains your style and kind of keeps you in a certain order and so forth. I I do miss that at times. And and we have two editors on staff now that come from a data background and they uh have been struggling <laughs> with this. You can tell um uh, that they kind of would go, they switch over to data in a heartbeat. So. I, had a, I had a job where we were using Confluence and it was that same thing where yeah, conf everybody had access to it. And the problem was like I had one woman who decided we should spell a product name differently. Oh. And she went in and changed the name. And I said, marketing told me how to spell it. You just spelled it wrong. I had to go back in and change it all back. I had a tech support guy go in and he put in some information that was necessary, but it was just unintelligible with the horrible writing. And, you know, I wish he could have sent it to me first and then I would have written it and put it up in, in coherent writing. So I did not like having non-tech writers have access to documents that they can change and go live. Yeah. Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when a company puts up stuff that's incoherent and unintelligible. Yeah, that just, yeah, I, I, I agree, but I haven't seen too much of that as a thing. They're just... 
it, it it it's growing though so who knows where you know maybe it'll become the wild west soon or something or whatever but for now it it, it seems pretty smooth the are oh this oh well like i i i borrowed it <laughs> from various people this was actually a, a a image for a video game uh uh that was basically a a a kind of bloody version of red riding hood so I think it was maybe by the same studio, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never played it, but uh, I like the concept art, so and it fit with the talk when I was putting it together. So I had a when I gave, when I gave this talk at the conference, I had a I had a big Nerf axe with me. <laughs> so Do you use templates at all when you're Uh not really. I mean, we have no, not really. It's all pretty much blank space, and we just kind of fill it in. Do you have yeah. Standards, or we have standards. Oh, we have standards and conventions and styles. We just have to maintain them uh, by by manually by hand. Yeah, and that's the tricky part. And that's what, uh, as we've grown, that's probably the hardest thing, is is just keeping everyone on the same page. And we that's what the editors are there for, and why we have we do have a style guide, and we have meetings, and we have editorial forums, and so on. Um, but it's hard because people get, I have, I have seen it, how people will get, there will be the, the official styles and then there's like the shadow styles <laughs> that, that get transmitted like, like by accident, you know, someone, oh, look, I discovered this way to do this thing. And then they, they tell everyone else it spreads like a virus. And then I go to the, I use it. And then the editors scream bloody murder. And then I'm like, well, and then I look at the style guide. And of course it's not there that kind of thing is going on so hopefully we'll you know i think it's just an ongoing thing so uh in what kind of reviews oh no 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 oh yeah no yeah so we don't we really engineers for the most part are not that excited about editing the wiki nobody's doing like direct edits like that kind of edit like for the most part we see we don't make it we don't walk around going hey you can all edit the docs go edit the docs but you know people will discover they could do it if they if they tried so but and and but we'd have you know i i have occasionally like like gone to a topic that i haven't looked at in a long time ago oh where did this section come from you know, and then I just, you know, edit and put together whatever. And yeah, it's, but usually it's not bad. Um, and uh, it, it's never been something that I've really, that's really been uh, a major showstopper for us. We're getting, uh, let's see, plus contract is around 3,000. 3,000? Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Uh, about 25. Five, I think, yeah. just including two, two in Shanghai that we just hired. So, so, the, so the 3,000 numbers global. Yeah, 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 3,000-something. But I think that's including, like, contractors and interns and things right now. Uh, I think uh, full-time employees is in the, uh, somewhere in 2,500, something like that. So. so do you have a notification mechanism for changes? I mean, that, like, yes. if you follow a page and get... Yeah, you can you can do that. I haven't done it that much. I'd get pinged all the time, probably, but uh, it's not. 
Actually, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I can look at the page history and most of my pages don't change, aren't changed by that many people. It's usually me and a, and a writer and a couple other people there, but there are few, I, I think it depends on what part of the product you're looking at. And the people that I've seen edit the docs the most have been support folks. So, so, um, and so who's creating these scenarios that you're talking about? I am, other writers, um, writers in pretty much every, every part of the company. And, and the medium for those is the same wiki? Or yeah. Yeah. So people can go edit those accounts? If they want, yeah, but people generally don't. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not, ed editing is not, it was, I think I, I stopped worrying about that about a week after I joined. So. We're trying to get them to think that way. I think they're doing some. Some of them are thinking that way on their own. Uh, but um, I mean, you know, we're all. I think some of the better features I've worked on lately have all been about how do we help people solve a certain type of problem, and and that's how I'm pitching the docs for those things. You know, like some of the new functionality that we've got out right now. I'm uh, very much pitching. It's, it's all about what can you do with it? How can, what, why do I want to see this thing? Why am I here? Um, because the type of, for the feature, this certain feature I'm working on right now, I can't say what, and I don't want, can't go into details because it's future, but it is, it is the target user is sort of a business analyst who doesn't know how to use our search language, which is really complicated, takes a long time to learn. And so I don't want to scare them away with a lot of technical talk. I want to like, just make it as, as accessible and easy seeming as possible. And, and so I'm all about like why you would use this, what situations you would use this, how, what kind of things this will solve for you. But, um, and then I theoretically, hopefully the actual interface will be so easy they can figure it out on their own for the most part. And I'm trying to put a lot of, uh, I'm trying to put more of a focus on user assistance than I usually do. UX, yes. think about it in a scenario-based way. Yes. At the very beginning. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, um, as a writer, you're often thinking about use cases and how to make something right. more it's, um, clear to a customer. But if it doesn't happen at the very beginning, sometimes you're just kind of writing through, kind of work around. Yeah, I feel like I feel like lately it's been getting really uh, that kind of we were having I've worked on pro, I've been there a long time and I've worked on things that didn't have that approach and which kind of crashed and burned. And and I think some of the stuff that we're doing now is very much they're putting a lot more time into figuring out what kind of user they're targeting it towards and what these users need and how we're solving those needs. And not so much, let's build a cool thing and put it out there and we'll call it this arcane name because that's what it's called in computer science terms and blah, 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 and then everybody's scared to use it, you know? So. Uh, so have, have you read the, uh, the Alan Cooper books on interaction design? Do you use that, those methodologies at all? I should read them. I've, I haven't though. But uh, I know other folks in our, on my team are reading them. So uh, I'll probably get them in my bookshelf soon. 
Yeah, we do a lot of sharing of books. We actually have a little book club right now that we're, we're going through various things. So. I think that the founders of the company, uh, they had some bizarre name that I don't remember that was more, that was not as memorable. And I think that they were looking at something that searched for your data. Well, and I think one of them, that we had one, we had two guys that found the company. One of them, would, when I started, was still very active with the company. And, and whenever he sent out emails, they were full of misspellings. And I am pretty sure that this was his way of spelling spelunk. <laughs> Caving. Yeah, like you're diving down and finding the gems in the caves. That's, that, that, was where, that was the idea, but I think he just wrote it Splunk, and then somebody saw that and laughed a lot, and that became the name of the company. So I really don't, I'm not sure, uh, but that's my theory. I'm sticking to it. So. Best theory I've heard so far. <laughs> so does Splunk use its own analytics for oh, yeah. products? Yeah. And its documentation? We, we actually try to use the, yeah, for, for even for our documentation metrics. Okay. It's a little rough because you this is always with all of the, you know, with anything where you're measuring like usage of a, of a product or usage of a doc site, the, there's a lot of things you can know, but then there's inferences you end up making. Right. And one of the things we'd love to, we're, we're, we're trying to do is sort of get a, se a sense of like when users are being deflected, when documentation is deflecting a support case. And, but there's a point where like we can go, okay, well, these people looked at this page and then didn't file a ticket, and these people looked at a page and then did. And um, we can hope that the people that saw, found the page and didn't file the ticket, that there's a correlation, but we're not always really sure. So, um, but we do, we do use our own, our own metrics, uh, as well as things like Google Analytics and stuff like that to kind of get an idea of what's going on with our users and our docs. But the doc site is the most trafficked site as part of the Splunk website, so that's fun. Something that some of our engineers and UX people don't always know. <laughs> I've been in some meetings where people lecture me, nobody reads the docs, and I'm like, well, let's show you some metrics on that. <laughs> so, so can you take input like Google We could, I don't know uh, if that's something that we see a point in doing, but we can, because we can get the, almost the same analytics ourselves at this point. Uh, I'm not sure what they have. I, I don't, I'm not really involved in all the metrics gathering. Um, my managers could talk to that, but I, I ha I'm not sure where we're at with it right now, to be honest. I remember, I remember kind of helping write some of the searches early on, but, but been, I've been kind of away from that biz for a bit. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Sure. All right.